This is The Political Scene, a weekly conversation with New Yorker writers and guests about politics. It's Thursday, February 27th. I'm Dorothy Wickenden, executive editor of The New Yorker. This week, the former film producer Harvey Weinstein was convicted in a New York court of a criminal sexual act in the first degree and third degree rape. Weinstein has been accused by more than 90 women of sexual harassment, assault, or rape, and he has become an emblem of how men with money and power are protected, sometimes over decades, from the consequences of their misdeeds. He'll be sentenced on March 11th and faces between five and 29 years in prison. He is also facing several felony charges and trial in a Los Angeles court. If convicted, he could face up to another 28 years in prison. Weinstein continues to claim that he's entirely innocent, and last week, in an interview with The Times, Donna Rotunno, the lawyer leading Weinstein's defense team, attempted to shift blame from her client to his accusers. So that notion that he could hurt people's careers, I absolutely find ridiculous. The second part of your question is, these are still choices that women are making. And whether they're choices you're happy you made or not happy you made, you still made a choice. And women have to start owning those choices, and they either have to say, I'm not going to do these things to attempt to get a job, or I'm going to own my choice for making that decision. Rebecca Solnit, who has written books and essays about women's rights, grassroots activism, environmental issues, and many other subjects, joins me to discuss how flagrant lies prevail over truth in business and politics and what it takes to expose them. Rebecca, welcome back to the program. My pleasure. So you and others have described the Weinstein verdict as a watershed moment in the Me Too movement. But you also described it in a piece for The Times this week as a warning. Could you explain what you meant? Yeah, I'm not sure it's a watershed because it stops one man, not all men. But the warning may stop a lot of other men. And what this signifies, as some of the other uh, arrest charges and convictions do, is, hey, guys, the era of impunity is over If you're thinking of doing this, you may not get away with it the way you did before or guys like you did before because what all these men counted on is that these women were not going to be heard or if they're heard, they're not going to be believed or if they're going to be believed, it still wouldn't matter. That's the audibility, credibility and consequence of voice that women have so long lacked and that is the precondition that makes these long sexual assault campaigns of people like Harvey Weinstein while you know, being public figures so possible. Even many people who were absolutely convinced of Weinstein's guilt were worried that he would somehow get off in this trial. And he had a very uh, strong defense attorney, Donna Rotano, whom we just heard above, you know, who's argued that having voluntary sex with someone, even if it's a begrudging act, is not a crime after the fact. I'm curious what you think the jurors made of her arguments. He was, Weinstein was acquitted of the two most serious charges, first degree rape and two counts of predatory sexual assault, which would have carried life sentences. I think the fact he was convicted at all is magnificent and kind of remarkable because about 3% of rapists who are actually charged with rape are actually convicted. The conviction rate for rape is incredibly low, whether it's, you know, the frat boy in the dorm or, 
you know, almost any other category, let alone an incredibly rich guy with some of the most powerful and aggressive lawyers working on his behalf. So the fact there was a conviction at all seems to me, as somebody who's looked at thousands of cases like this, a huge victory, even if it wasn't comprehensive. It's also, as other people have pointed out, a victory for people beginning to understand the complexity of what happens when you're a victim and why victims often act in ways that are not what the kind of textbook demands, which is that you you stand up, you scream, you call the police, you act with a kind of empowered fury and indignation. And the fiction that I tried to address in this New York Times piece is that we all have equal power. We all have these wonderful decisions to take these charismatic actions that will cause these appropriate legal responses. You know, we are all equal under the law on paper. You look at all the things Weinstein employed, including David Boyce, the most powerful lawyer in the country, arguably, you know, the Black Cube um, spy agency to intimidate, silence, manipulate journalists as well as victims. And you know, even leaving aside the tendency of this culture to believe men over women almost automatically, they did not have equal power. These women did not have good choices available until everything changed thanks to the New York Times journalists and Ronan Farrow at The New Yorker's journalism and people were actually willing to listen to them and have what they said have consequences. I think we need to point out, too, even though it may seem obvious, that the silencing of women isn't limited to public figures with lots of money to throw around and you know expensive lawyers to, to defend them. In the past year, in The New Yorker alone, we had Rachel Aviv reporting about a woman named Jessica Lester, whose abusive husband was a cop, Larissa McFarker about a battered women's shelter in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and Elizabeth Flock about Brittany Smith, who attempted unsuccessfully to claim the stand-your-ground defense in Alabama after she killed the man who raped her. Is there any evidence that relatively recent laws like stand-your-ground are beginning to make a difference? I That was such an extraordinary piece about the woman in Alabama and how selectively stand-your-ground is enforced. We saw it earlier with, I believe, a it was in Florida, a black woman who fired a shot that did not hit her threatening a strange husband right after she'd given birth and was jailed and not allowed to use that defense. So even the idea that you have the right to defend yourself where we're all supposedly equal under the law doesn't make us equal, not only because men own most of the guns in this country, but because it's far more acceptable for men and for white men than for anybody else. The difficult thing is that we have all this stuff on paper that says we're all equal and people who don't want to understand how unequal we are blame the victims by pretending that they're failing to act from a position of equality rather than to recognize what I think this jury did recognize is that we're not. We are not equal. We have a massive history of women being treated. You can go back to even the Old Testament if you want to women being treated as manipulative, devious, unreliable, delusional, subjective, just unqualified to testify to what just happened. And you see, he said, she said things all the time in politics, everywhere in which the 
default assumption of too many people is that men are automatically reliable sources and women therefore are not. And no recognition of the incredible courage it takes for these women to come forward. I feel a lot of like what changed that Harvey Weinstein was charged is the we when we talk about changed and part of it was the boring feminism of the past 50 years that made women judges, women editors, uh, including the one I'm talking to, women, uh, you know, executive producers at TV stations, you know, women detectives, women in positions of power, but also feminist men, men who did not automatically discount women, did not think men and men's needs and rights and versions were more important. And hence what we saw with the jurors, which was really heartening. Yeah, yeah. There's a way that people constantly try and frame me to this October 2017 thing as the beginning of something, but I think it was the culmination of something which was a gradual social shift so that the people who decided who we're going to listen to and who we're going to believe had really changed. Another thing I think is really significant is we've all had an incredible education if we've been paying attention into what actually happens. A lot of the cliches and stereotypes that false accusations are common and rape is rare, that the only innocent victim is the nun holding a revolver while locked in a bank vault. You know, all these ways in which we've failed to understand the complexity of what happens, how often it happens between people who know each other, how often the forms of coercion aren't only physical violence, how often what happens afterwards, including what the police and the legal system do to the victim, is also intrusive, degrading, violating. And this incredible conversation we've been having, not since October of 2017, but since about 2012, has given us all equipment to understand these situations that we didn't have before. I mean, I've been a feminist for most of my adult life, and I have learned so much from these conversations from victims and experts, historians, sociologists, legal experts, all coming forward and telling us what happens. This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, I'll talk with our Washington correspondent about the many political battles being waged in the Capitol over how to deal with the coronavirus. You couldn't imagine a president personalizing a crisis with a virus, but somehow that's, that's where we are. Susan Glasser, this week on the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. I'm also interested in the wider argument you're making about why people armed with a vast array of facts nevertheless so often don't prevail against pathological liars. And I spoke to, on this program, I spoke a few years ago, actually right near the beginning of the Trump presidency, to Cicela Bach, uh, who in 78, as you know, after Watergate, published her classic book, Lying, Moral Choice in Public and Private Life. She argues there what we basically know, that deceit is an intrinsic part of politics. But she writes specifically, political lies so often assumed to be trivial by those who tell them rarely are. They cannot be trivial when they affect so many people and when they are so peculiarly likely to be imitated, used to retaliate, and spread from a few to many. 
when political representatives or entire governments arrogate to themselves the right to lie, they take power from the public that would not have been given up voluntarily. So I just found that an extraordinarily relevant statement, given what we're living through right now with the Trump administration. Absolutely. And with the Trump administration, we've seen a completely different kind and volume and intensity of lying. You look at the way someone like Richard Nixon lied, and he lied not wanting to get caught, trying to make it pass as truth, you know, with a kind of cringing, sneaky way of putting it across, whereas the Trump administration almost seems to triumph in its lies. As Heather Cox Richardson says, and I mentioned in this article, forcing people to accept things that we all know are lies is a, is a kind of naked show of power of I don't even have to play by the rules. I don't even need you to believe me because you don't even matter enough for your belief and your buy-in to count anymore. And it really kind of goes back to Karl Rove saying that thing on the Air Air Force One to a journalist about the reality-based community, and now we just write the narrative, and it doesn't have to be reality-based. But we see that all across the board. We see that in how fossil fuel corporations created a false debate about the reality of climate change. We see after, by the way, they they had their own scientists confirm that this was a problem, and then they spent decades and many millions of dollars denying it. Absolutely. And so, what I really wanted to do in this article is not just talk about what happened with Weinstein and not just what happens with sexual assault and gender violence and the gender politics of it, but to recognize that much more broadly. We have so many undemocratic inequalities of power in which power prevails over facts, whether it's about climate change, whether it's about police brutality against black victims, whether it's about gender. And the ideals this country keeps asserting is an equality of audibility, credibility, and consequence where anyone can speak up, everyone will be listened to, and we're going to sort it out by what the facts are, what appears to be true. But that's so often not how it works. And for me, the cure is a democracy of voices where we actually listen in much more egalitarian ways, where we don't let people have the kind of power Harvey Weinstein had, both the power of male authority and the power of extreme wealth and clout in his industry to silence so many women, and the fact that these women were actresses who were in movies and on TV and in award ceremonies, and none of them were in a position where they felt they could just, you know, call a press conference, call the police, say this happened, is about the fact that we don't have a democracy of voices, and we desperately need to. And Rebecca, of course, President Trump was elected after the country learned that he had many allegations against him of uh, sexual misconduct on his part. What's fascinating about Trump's situation is that those of us who believe the woman, the many, many women who've charged him with many things from unwanted kissing and groping and harassment to sexual assault— we're so against him anyway, it doesn't make a difference. And then the people who are for him refuse to hear and believe the woman. And so Trump is this bizarre phenomenon where even the news stories, even extraordinary testimony from people like E. Jean Carroll doesn't really seem to change anything. And that's shocking and dismaying 
at the same time that it's completely understandable because we are so divided between those who think Trump can do no wrong and those of us who recognize that he's done so much of it. But the fact that the Republican Party has also taken a post-fact, post-truth position that we are behind this guy. We don't care what the facts are. We will openly try to suppress the facts. We don't care what the law is. We will openly violate the law is part of the really big trouble we're in. And it's incredibly dangerous. I'm hoping that we can vote our way out of it. I'm not sure that we can. But it feels almost that the enormity of the crisis is rarely acknowledged, that it's seen as procedural rather than foundational, conceptual, existential. But to end on a somewhat more hopeful note, which I try to do whenever possible, um, we are seeing some of the effects of the the Bill Cosby and Weinstein cases, uh, not least in the backlash against non-disclosure agreements between companies and accusers. And most recently, we saw this twice in recent Democratic debates when Elizabeth Warren went after Michael Bloomberg, charging him with sexual harassment and gender discrimination in the workplace and demanding that he release the women who signed NDAs with him when he was head of Bloomberg. Yeah, no, that was a that was beautiful to see. And it was also fascinating to see the assumption Bloomberg had that he could override the facts. And then Chris Matthews failing to comprehend that Elizabeth Warren had believed a woman when a man had a powerful, high status man had said otherwise, and failing to comprehend that actually that woman had said so on the record that a man had backed her up, that the Washington Post had, uh, you know, interviewed that man, that Elizabeth Warren was proceeding on evidence and was not some flighty woman. I do think that a lot of what we're seeing with the Trump administration, with white supremacy, with this misogynist backlash is backlash. They're freaking out because in some ways we are approaching an era of a democracy of voices with more people of color, more women, more non-cisgender, non-straight people participating, and they're clearly unhappy with it. I do think demographics on our side. I do think women are not going to give up and go home. I do think these changes are moving forward. In some ways, culturally, in many parts of the legal system, on campuses, etc. But we are up against terrible things, and we are facing a rogue administration that is itself the greatest enemy this country faces at present, as far as I'm concerned. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Thank you, Dorothy. Rebecca Solnit is the author of more than 20 books, including the forthcoming memoir, Recollection of My Non-Existence, which will be published in March. This has been The Political Scene. You can subscribe to this and other New Yorker podcasts by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app and find more political analysis and commentary on newyorker.com. Feel free to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Our theme music is by Russell Gillespie. This program was produced by Alex Barron and Kylie Warner for newyorker.com. I'm Dorothy Wickenden. <laughs>